0: You can be seated. I always wonder if I'm going to remember to push this button to turn my mic on. It's kind of like those dreams, those nightmares you had as a child when you found yourself speaking in grade school in your classroom and noticed that your zipper was down or you didn't have pants on, but um, we've got the mic turned on. Good morning. Welcome, church. It's good to see you again as our church family. Uh, We are... um, in our first week of the post West Falls and we already miss them. Thank you, Kelly and music team and uh, all. You know, one of the things you learn in life is that nobody's indispensable. And uh, so we're happy for the next man up, so to speak, as they use in football terminology um, to carry the banner of work here at this wonderful church and church family. We, um, we have a uh, kind of a tag team going on today because last week, Steve taught on the issue of money and wealth and he didn't know but uh, when I stepped in to continue in Matthew, I was at that same section and so, uh, echoing some of the things that you heard last week, it is true that the issue of money and possessions are spoken of at least in one sixth of the New Testament verses and maybe as many as one third of the parables. And so, we have uh, in front of us today a wonderful task. Let's open with prayer. Father, we ask today that the work of your Spirit, would work in our lives and the scriptures as promised would separate to the, uh, to, the, to the separation of our soul in a way that causes us to motivate and live more like Jesus and in a way that counts for eternity. And we commit that to you today in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> as they say in the um, trade, a hypothetical might be that an urgent emergency call was placed to the pastoral staff at Grace Point. And as it turned out, the pastoral staff wasn't immediately available. So uh, the message that was left was, I'm in trouble, I don't know what to do, I need you to call me back as soon as possible. Now, all of us have had those kind of calls I get them at my office, but this hypothetical was a call to the pastoral staff here. And as a staff member called that person back, they said, Well, let's get you in. It sounds like you're in significant distress. And um, the person said, Yes. And they came in for an appointment and sat down, and the staff sat with them. And they said, What's going on? And they said, I don't know what to do. I'm absolutely Terrified. So, what happened? And then those five words came out that strike fear into the heart of everyone. I just won the lottery. <laughs> fear, right? Fear. Um, so, the message today is how can Christians win the lottery, Um, you could buy a ticket. This ticket represents the possibility of winning $900 million. (laughs) I used to, in my earlier years, fantasize. You know, what if I won? What would I do? Well, the first thing you do, you say, well, I'd I'd give 10% to the church not recognizing that actually in the Old Testament with the combination of taxes and sacrifices in Israel, (laughs) the percentage was between 29 and 30%. And in the New Testament, I don't want to dissuade you in terms of your giving patterns, but in the New Testament, the pattern is giving cheerfully, giving sacrificially and giving as unto the Lord, but 10% of $900 million, I can make that work. Uh, I'm reminded on the subject of the lottery of one of the first lottery winners in Oregon. It's easy to remember him because I had an employee by the same name who was not the same person. His name was Richard Anderson and he won the lottery not once in Oregon but twice and he was best known beyond his life kind of exploding after all that happened he was best known for the comment that said if I Knew I was going to win the lottery. I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> yeah, you know. I guess that's the point. So uh, what we have today is in Matthew five the words of Jesus, which I find to be very encouraging in terms of instructing us of how to construct a portfolio that impacts eternity. You know, I'm going to give you the last chapter today at the first. Here's my last chapter for the morning. My goal is for you and me to live our lives in a way that we build an eternal portfolio. There are a number of law firms and different organizations that, are, that they have as their banner word, wealth preservation or wealth accumulation. And, and there's nothing wrong with that in terms of trying to be wise with what you have. But, but the irony is that in the world that Jesus taught his disciples in, it potentially moves into a conflict. Now I want you to appreciate today as we go through these scriptures that there's a difference between, to give the disclaimer, there's a difference between a moral instruction and a wisdom instruction in the scriptures. And to understand the scriptures, you have to understand that at times, It's not a black and white. It's a issue of how are you going to structure your life and live in a way that's skillful, that's wisdom, that lasts for eternity. And so we are starting our session today in Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew 6, we have Jesus teaching the disciples, and he's teaching them about the subject of joy, of how to be blessed, of how to be satisfied. And so in chapter 6, Jesus teaches the disciples and says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. I want to give you a little financial information for a minute. You say, well, John, I, I haven't got a problem there because I've got a savings and my savings is in the bank. And so I'm covered. And uh, you need to know that our money in the bank is as unsecured creditors. And so the language here of moths and vermin destroy are the text being moths and rust will destroy is applicable in the sense that nobody has long-term security in terms of what we own, you just don't. If three banks in America fold, we're good. If 30 banks in America fold, we're still good. But if 3,000 or 30,000 banks in America fold, even with the FDIC assurances for the federal and the separate assurances for the credit unions, It'll be a while until you see the money you've got in the bank because you're an unsecured creditor. You don't stand in the front of the line to get your savings back. I don't tell you that to scare you. I tell you that to instruct that the words that Jesus said are true, that if you're laying up for yourselves treasures that say, I'm good, uh, it has a relative kind of a concept. Jesus said, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven Where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, there for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in this instruction, Jesus is saying the core issue when it comes to life and joy and blessing has to do with the heart. It doesn't have to do with laying up treasures in a way that insulate you from those circumstances around you. We know that actually from a number of surveys in 2021, there's a survey made of 3,400 attorneys and they asked questions that have to do with satisfaction in their job. And the statistics that came back were that 35% of those attorneys suffered with depression and didn't know how to deal with it. 67% of those attorneys struggled with anxiety. 44% of those attorneys struggled with substance abuse, and 19% of those attorneys with what's called suicide ideology. You can't get to a place in life where your earthly treasures satisfy your heart. And so Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We'll expand on that in our scriptures. He goes on to say, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. Then the light within you is darkness. How great is that darkness? So he talks about the fact that when we're evaluating how to lay up the priorities of life, the first thing we have to think about is our heart. And the second thing we have to think about is our eyes. In other words, what's our focus? What's the thing that gives us direction? And he follows up with that to say, no one can serve two masters. Either hate the one and love the other. I will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is an instruction that lays at the feet of every Christian in America because you need means and resources to live. You need to make some kind of contemplation or expectation about the future. But Jesus says, watch your heart and watch your eyes and make sure that the focus is not on things that are of this world, but rather laying up treasure for eternity. Now the disciples were significantly struck by these kinds of instructions because they lived in a world where money and position was power. And they even saw that among the religious leaders who loved to parade themselves around in front of them with certain clothing and certain high standing and chairs in the synagogue in a way that set them off as separate. And Jesus is saying, that's only a distraction that doesn't have any treasure. a treasure that is in heaven. You know, um, every one of us has in our lap, as stewards, four different things. We have a certain amount of money, including discretionary money, and we have to decide how to use that. Um, You know, we have some really good speakers that travel around the country, and they remind us of things like, Make a budget, have a written budget. They remind us get out of debt and they're right because the borrower is the slave of the lender. They remind us to live on less than we earn. Again, that's good counsel in terms of a direction that provides a focus for your heart other than accumulating wealth. They instruct you to save money And finally, then to be generous. And in those instructions and in Jesus' words here, what we're finding is that the core issue is not really just what we do with our money. It's what we do with everything God has given us. And he's given us four things. He's given us money. He's given us relationships. And everyone has a certain number of relationships from which they carry a responsibility, he's given us possessions, and in this scripture, we find that uh, there are concerns as, this, as Matthew 6 continues about possessions and your life and worrying about your life, and Jesus said, don't worry about your life, today has enough trouble of its own, and then finally, uh, we are given time. Psalm says, our days are numbered. And there as Spurgeon says, no power on earth that can take a man who is in God's sovereign purposes numbered on his days until his life's work is done. But after that, there's no power on earth that'll keep him here a day longer. So in time, in possession in relationships and money, that's the package that you have. That's the portfolio that's under my arm And the question is, how am I going to deal with it? How am I going to avoid the dangers of serving the master money instead of God? How am I going to lay up treasures which are in heaven? Well, there's a whole series of people that have won the lottery in the past. One of them was William Post, who in uh, 2013. um, he uh, won $16 million, and from that, within a year, he was a million dollars in debt. He was sued by a number of family members. He'd spent his money on cars and motorcycles and a plane that he couldn't fly, and his ex-girlfriend sued him for a third of his fortune, and it turned into a disaster for him. In fact, he said, I wish I'd torn up the ticket, interestingly enough. Uh, David Edwards was another who won the lottery and who said, I want to be one who is known by my wealth. And in that regard, Edwards won $27 million. And in that, he became an instant celebrity. He was on some of the national talk shows. And yet within three years, he'd lost his entire Wealth with drinking and gambling, with several family members who tragically died and twice was charged with driving under the influence as well as assaulting female casino workers. So the phenomena of having wealth is something that is in our our world fairly common the median income in America is $75,000 a year. But we live in a world and a nation that's haves and have nots. So what we have with our heart issues and with our focus as we follow the instructions of Jesus is what do I do with what I have in a way that counts for eternity? The first of the instructions in the New Testament come from Jesus. The last of the instructions in the New Testament come from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And so we find in 1 and 2 Timothy that this subject comes up again. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10 is a stark warning to each of us who God has given us the kind of responsibilities and possessions that we are to use in a way that's wise. So Tim, so Paul writes to Timothy that in godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and covering, we'll be content with that. Look at that definition for a minute. That's the definition of contentment in the Bible. And I would suggest to you because you should be asking the question now, okay, what about me? How would God view my resources? And the starting point is right there with the definition of contentment. Everything beyond food and clothing and a roof over our heads is frosting in this life. Now that doesn't mean that you can't want more. I've had debt in my past in three or four different areas. Um, For education, as I borrowed money to go to graduate school, uh, for buying homes, for buying vehicles, for some investments. But in that whole thing, I was dealing in the periphery of wealth, of expanding, my footprint financially in a way that I thought was appropriate. There are some in this church, for example, who are waiting to get out of an apartment into a home. That's not wrong, that's not bad. And if you have to borrow some money to do that, I don't see anything that prohibits that, but you move with wisdom and with selection and care to make sure you're not living beyond your means. Timothy goes on to say in defining contentment, Those who want to get rich, and here's the warning, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In that description comes financial disaster, physical, disaster and spiritual disaster. And so the loving of money, of wanting to be rich in a way that redirects your attention and your heart and your passions is something that will bring calamity on you. David Lee Edwards was a man who won $27 million and he bought a mansion, he bought dozens of luxury cars, he bought a private jet with a personal pilot. Five years after he had that money, it was all gone and Edwards was living with his wife in a storage unit contaminated with human feces. Edwards' wife ended up leaving him and he died penniless in hospice care in 2013 at the age of 58. Michael Todd Hill was convicted of first degree murder and the slaying of his girlfriend. He inherited, excuse me, he, by way of uh, the lottery, um, got uh, 13 million dollars, and as a result, it led to contention with his live-in girlfriend, and as and and it ended up with him murdering her and being sentenced to life in prison because of the conflict that came out of the money. And it goes on and on. And the warning here is in First Timothy six that the love of money, the love that directs our heart and our attention and wanting to get rich can lead to a wandering from the faith and piercing yourself with many griefs. In other words, it sets up a cycle in our lives where we come to multiple crossroads and at each crossroad we say, I'll choose getting wealthy instead of being considering what God wants me to do with what I have. And that crossroad and that decision cycles you into progressively more trouble. We saw that in James chapter one, when James said, when tempted, no one should say God's tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away by his own desire and dragged away and enticed. And after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So the cycle of life for each of us is What do we do with the things that are in our lap? What do we do with the resources God has given us in a way that guards our financial fort? It protects our heart. It protects our spiritual walk. I frankly am quite sobered by James chapter four, where James writes, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go to this place or that city Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What's your life? You're a you're a mist that appears, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say it is the Lord's will. It's the Lord's will. We'll live and do this and that. But as it is, you boast and brag. As such, boast, such boasting is evil. And then a verse that candidly has staggered me. I'll be very frank with you. This is one of the challenges in front of me. James writes, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. So there we've crossed the threshold back from wisdom to moral instruction. I didn't write that. James did. And he says, if there's something in front of you that have your opportunity to do good and you don't do it, that's sin. I don't know about you, but this is how I live my life. I told the men yesterday in our study, I had a friend that um, rode his minor motorcycle year round. And I said to him, how do you keep being killed? How do you keep alive in riding your motorcycle the way you do? And Ron said to me, I ride with radar beams going out all around me. I said, what do you mean? He said, whether it's my peripheral vision or whether it's in front of me, I've got a dozen radar beams that keep me alert, keep me watching, keep me watching traffic, keep me watching the weather. And that's the way I ride my cycle. And you know, this may be quirky for you, but it works for me. I've applied that to life. And so when I go through life, I've got, radar beams whether it's at work or in other kinds of community settings that is always saying what's going on around me what can i do that applies the standard of the good samaritan in terms of caring for my neighbor more than myself most recently it happened this morning i was finishing up this message in my office this morning and I was visiting with another woman in our building and we got to talking and she said, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the bench, I'm on the substitutes and when Steve's not available, I'll come in and teach and I'm teaching this morning on earthly versus heavenly treasure. And she said, you know, what I found is that as Christians in America, we live in the shadow of Jesus instead of in following Jesus. I said, what do you mean? I hadn't heard that phrase before. She said, we want the benefits of being saved and and that's the shadow of Jesus, but then we wanna live the way we want so that we don't care for the poor. We're not concerned about meeting the needs of others more than ourselves. And I said, that's kind of profound. Do you wanna preach the sermon this morning? (laughs) (laughs) But the point was this, you know, one of my radar beams caught her and created, uh, I think, a a spiritually positive communication and encouragement. And I think that's the way we live our life. We live it in a way, instead of wanting to get rich and expanding our earthly portfolio, we live in a way that says, how can the time and relationships and circumstances of life be something that counts for eternity? Another of our men in this church likes to say to people, and he has on occasion, when a waitress has served him, how can I pray for you? That's a wonderful thing to ask if, if you find that the dialogue is appropriate for someone that's around you. And in that particular case, this woman was going through a number of life crises that he said, I will pray for you. And that was a wonderful, I think, work that says, I'm interested in expanding my eternal portfolio, not just earthly treasures. So Paul writes to Timothy and says, watch out if you are wanting to get rich, that it'll create a cycle in your life that will be damaging to you. And so he says, command those who are rich not to be arrogant or to put the hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do you see the last, those last words? You wanna have a wonderful, fulfilled, God-blessed life? There it is. Put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We're gonna end the message today. It's not yet, but we're coming. It's going to end the day with some theology. And what we're gonna conclude is, God has set our feet on solid ground in Jesus and said to us, I wanna give you an opportunity to make your life count for eternity. Do you realize what a privilege that is to not only just live for this life and filling out the, the boxes and circumstances and years of this life, but to live in a way that says, my name is written in the book. And because in the book, I've been given guidelines on how to live in a way that honors the eternal God. Paul goes on to write to Timothy at the end of the section in in uh, First Timothy six, that um, the instruction is to uh, live as one who wants to be using the wealth, the the circumstances that God's provided us, and to be generous and willing to share in this way. In this section of Scripture, command those who are good to be rich in to to do good, to be rich in good deeds. There's the haves and the have nots in this section. The haves are command those who are rich. I would suggest to you for your consideration that to the extent your circumstances are beyond food and covering, that is you have discretionary money, you have discretionary possessions that you can use, you have relationships that God's entrusted you with and that you have time that you Take that in a way that says, I am rich. It wouldn't hurt for you to say that to yourself. You say, John, you're getting kind of weird now. At least that's, I think, accurate to the scriptures. Anything beyond our basic provisions is something that, for many of us, is wealth. Not for all of us. 57% of Americans if they ran into an emergency could not find $1,000 to meet that emergency. Twenty-five percent of Americans go to bed hungry. Twenty-three thousand veterans are homeless. Twenty-seven veterans a day kill themselves. So we have really a phenomenon in this country that's dramatically the haves And the have nots. And you will have, as the radar in your life goes out, you'll have an opportunity and occasion to run in to people in different circumstances in life. And Paul tells Timothy, consider, though, for, for those that are rich, consider how to be rich in good works. So the haves are the wealth that God's given us, the have nots, is we're not yet rich in good works. That's the task that's ahead of us. And we are to be generous, as Paul writes. We are to be ones who look to meet the needs of others instead of ourselves. I love those qualifying phrases at the end of the section where it says, command them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they lay up for themselves treasures as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of life that is truly life. So that's our opportunity as believers. We can take what God has given us and we can invest it in things that just insulate us from the world around us and create comforts and kind of develop a consuming mentality that multiplies. our garages and our self-storage <coughs> units and all the things that, uh, that carry the things that we own, or we can say, I've got a different agenda that says, I'm going to look out for those around me who have needs that I can meet. One of the parables that's been most significant for me is the Good Samaritan. It's a life-changing parable for me. It's one of only two places in the Bible where the Bible says, by chance. One's in the Old Testament, and if you know where that is, you can come and sit in the front row. And the other is here in the New Testament. And it says, this good Samaritan, by chance, happened to go past this traveler who was injured. And as you know, though he'd been ignored by the religious leaders, this Samaritan, this half-breed, went over picked him up out of the ditch, took him to an inn, cared for his needs and promised to pay for the future expenses that came with his care and, and uh, residency uh, as a result of his, of his uh, life experience. What does that mean? It means that Jesus instructed that as we love the Lord our God with all of our whole heart and soul and mind, Rather than consuming ourselves with planes and, and cars and houses and whatever it takes to just live beyond our means, we are people who look for needs that we can meet, look for needs that we can see and needs we can meet. That's the definition of a neighbor. You could have the resources to meet someone's need, but you don't know about the need. That person is not yet your neighbor or you could see a need that someone has, but you don't have the resources to meet that need, that person is not yet your neighbor. But when those two coalesce, when they line up so that you see a need and you can meet a need, as James said, for those who know the right thing to do and don't do it, it's sin. They line up, what are you waiting for? Why is it that you aren't working on the portfolio that is being rich in good works? I think that's the instruction of Paul to Timothy in the latter stages for the new church. You know, it was um, Jim Elliott, who was a missionary in the 1950s in South America, who, who was known for a remarkable question hypothetically, again, that he put out to those who read and followed his life. Jim Elliott said, He's no fool to give away what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. You realize we all have a marking point of numbered of days. And at the end of that, we'll go and once we've believed in Christ, we'll go to heaven but in that entrance to heaven, we then will find ourselves at what the Bible calls the great white throne. And we'll give an account of what's done in in our bodies as believers. The text says, I didn't write this, the text says the good and the bad, meaning that as disciples, as people who are believers in Jesus, there is a future accounting coming for us using the resources that we have in a way that counts for eternity. I wanna wanna finish this message with some theology. I wanna raise you up to um, a wonderful thing, a doctrine called substitutionary atonement. The scriptures teach that the purposes of Jesus' life resulted in his death and burial and resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, speaks to the issue of Jesus who was our redemption. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? That means Jesus stood in my stead and he took my sin upon himself and applied the eternal blood of God and redemption that paid the ransom price so that now when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You know, that's really the final analysis of being ones who are building up an estate in heaven who really want a heavenly treasure and reward who want to love God instead of loving money, it starts with saying, my feet are on the rock. Jesus is the one who has given me redemption, has done the one who's paid the ransom for me, Mark 10 45, so that I can now live with meaning and live with purpose. And as the radar goes out in a way that says, how can I care for others more than myself? the meaning and purpose that he's given to be rich in good works is something that becomes the opportunity for all. No wonder that Paul ended this epistle to Timothy with the words in verse 20, grace be with you. And so it's true for us. What we say is in the circumstances of life that you find yourself, with the time God's given you, and the money, and possessions, and relationships. Use them in a way that counts for eternity. And then the portfolio won't just be wealth management or wealth preservation on this planet, but it'll be a portfolio that you and I can present to Jesus in worship to him because of what he's done for us. Let's pray. Father, we admit to the ease of being distracted by the affairs of this world and in that regard to living in a way that is less than fully opportunistic. We pray that you would, through your spirit, give us the wisdom and sensitivity and compassion to the needs of others so that as the days that you give us, that the circumstances of life will count not just for this life but for the life to come. And we'll be careful to praise him who is our savior, who set our feet on solid ground and given us a purpose for a life and a joy and enjoyment of life that is unsurpassed. In his name we pray.